This morning we wrap up our time in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we kind of wind down our time in Ecclesiastes, I just want to recall for you here, as we introduced a few months ago, how to kind of handle verse 9 right at the outset, and then we'll kind of work through the text from there by rehearsing how um, I put forward at the very beginning of our time in Ecclesiastes that that Ecclesiastes is an inspired work. Hands down, no doubt, no, no, no friction there for any of us, I trust, that is inspired and inerrant. And it is penned down, however, in the way in which God used men and moved about holy men in the recording of Holy Scripture, that it is penned down by an unnamed Jewish theologian. I have put that forward in my arguments for that much earlier in our time at the beginning of the book, but I want to point it out as it comes up this morning yet again That again, the book of Ecclesiastes is undoubted, without, and confessed, inspired, inerrant work, penned down by an unnamed Jewish theologian, whose purpose I put forward to you as we see evidence throughout the work itself was to show young people, and that young people is, again, kind of, when we look in the marketplace, a place somewhere in their kind of mid-20s in the the marketplace, And his purpose was to show this kind of aged group here, but certainly it reaches up and reaches down, how to maintain their faith in circumstances that militated powerfully against it. That is his effort. And we've seen the circumstances, and we'll see kind of touch up on them again a little bit throughout our time this morning. But again, as he writes, it is to the young to maintain, to kind of get on the whole armor of God, to get ready to maintain their faith in circumstances that militated powerfully. Not kind of, sort of, not outliers that no one pays attention to, but persuasive and powerful attacks against one's faith. A way in which one gets kind of engulfed into the marketplace and therein gets shipwrecked. The preacher here, or this unnamed theologian, writes this inspired work and effort to challenge and to call young people to maintain their faith and to identify those powerful, um, persuasive circumstances that seek to undo their faith. And again, he does so this way to teach this inspired wisdom, as we have seen sermon after sermon, as he seeks to teach his inspired wisdom He chooses a well-known and well-in-use literary convention. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. And this literary convention or this vehicle that he uses to then import into this vehicle the persuasive arguments that he is seeking to put forward. So we'll see in a minute um, the effort that he puts forward in gaining this information. We'll get there in just a moment. But consider he gains all of this information. And as a wise sage seeking to convey this information in a persuasive way, he puts it into a vehicle that was well-known and well-in-use, which is known as fictional royal autobiography. Again, a fancy way of kind of using a a form or or another individual that is well-known, which in this case is royal, or that is the king, that he enters into this person or this persona, the king, to tie his wisdom to that of the king, and so thereby to be persuasive. 
So what I'm trying to explain to you about the book of Ecclesiastes, of what I've already covered early on, is once again the narrator here. I hope to show you, because again it comes up in verse 9 for us this morning. The narrator created the preacher. This is what he did. He creates the preacher as the ideal embodiment of inspired wisdom. This is not kind of like a a tricky move on his part. It isn't something that is unknown or a literary convention that was not well in use. But he enters into this vehicle, imports the information into it so as to be persuasive to his audience. Fictional royal autobiography. So the preacher then creates, uh, or or the, the narrator creates this preacher in order to most effectively inspire and instruct his audience Notice how uh, this is a bit more clear as we jump into the text then this morning about how he uses this literary convention and he kind of exposes uh, uh, it to us uh, in his own words here in verse 9 towards our last time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Notice verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Do you you see his, his use of third person here? Notice, again, as he speaks from a narrator's perspective about his careful editorial work. Verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, with this careful editorial work, I want to I pause here so as to see his process to kind of um, feel the weight of the work of the preacher and by his studying, by his arranging thereby, also see the importance of wisdom, which he's covered again and again and again, and then its broader usage. What is the broader function of wisdom? Because again, we're ending our time in Ecclesiastes, which the heartbeat is about wisdom. Wisdom in life that is lived under the sun, living life here in the horizontal with a clear, fixed view of the vertical. Those who throw out the vertical and simply live horizontally find themselves in conundrum after conundrum after conundrum, vice after vice after vice, burden after burden after burden. So, so he's trying to, again, create questions in the mind of the listener. He's trying to give rhetorical questions out. He's trying to prompt. I know you probably are not so persuaded, so let me push you a little bit further. If I were to say this, you probably are about to say that, right? Exactly. I can go there too. This is the work of the preacher to be persuasive. Now, notice just how meticulous he has been in the structuring of these Proverbs and the use of wisdom. Again, we're learning here about the importance of wisdom. Notice the work of the editor here, or as he uses the preacher. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging the many Proverbs with great care. Notice this, in other words, he's referring here to the book that he has crafted and put together in these sermons, uh, in this sermon series. Look at the term that he uses, that the preacher used knowledge, weighing. If we stop right there and consider his editorial work here, he, the Jewish theologian, putting together these Proverbs, consider the term weighing. This is what he did in order to persuade you to the importance of wisdom. The term weighing is simply a term that says testing the value. That is the term, if you were to look up this term here, of weighing, you will find there under its definition, the testing of value. 
So again, so the preacher is this individual that has been created by the mind of the writer in order to use as a vehicle to communicate persuasive words. It wasn't haphazardly done because wisdom is critical to life. He wants to persuade you so significantly to move you in the pathway of wisdom, the resistance of foolishness, that he weighed or tested the value of wise words that were already in play. That is, the preacher spent time, or the editor spent time picking carefully, choosing and sifting through the most persuasive sayings available. This, again, gives us a small window into the importance of wisdom for life. It wasn't, again, like he sits back and kind of kicks back and lays back. He's like, you know what, son, let me tell you something. This is, this is an undertaking of a massive effort because wisdom is critical to life. A little fly and a whole lot of ointment ruins the ointment. Notice the next term beyond weighing, that of the testing of value of each and every saying that is already in play as he's sifting through the best arguments. Consider how he also says, not this the preacher sat out and preached and taught, but in the construction of this book, he weighed out, he tested the value, and furthermore, he was studying or literally the term, and I just kind of highlight for you the Hebrew term here, that then if you were to look it up and then find its definitions, it's adequate in its translation, but just let me fill out the picture beyond the term studying, is simply a searching out. So again, it kind of combines this weighing of the scales of that which as he sifts through the sayings, what is the most persuasive, what will really have the greatest burden upon my audience to submit to the thought of wisdom. He also, beyond that, carefully studied and sought out additional wise words. So again, he's kind of in this process. You can kind of picture him. Um, they didn't have electricity at the time, you, you do know. So he, he didn't turn the light on and sit underneath it in a dark room. Nonetheless, picture him doing that. So there he is, kind of not simply just the sitting back and thinking and making broad observations, but he's studying. He's giving himself to the process of searching out. That's he searches and he finds and he studies and he meditates. He then tests the value. He then weighs them against themselves. This one in, this one out. This works. This is persuasive. Let me craft it. Let me work on it. Let me write it. Yes, that is exactly what I'm trying to get across. Why work so hard? Because wisdom is critical to life. So it is that he undertakes this massive effort of which we have spent months plundering, and I trust gaining from, a carefully crafted, persuasive argument that wisdom is needed and foolishness is to be utterly rejected. Isn't a little foolishness fine? No, don't you remember? Flies are small, snakes are small, the charmer is big, and yet if the snake bites, the charmer dies. It's not about size. And it's not like a little quantity. He then says, but it's a small bird. But the bird tells secret things to other people that then get you into big trouble. It's not about size. It's not about quantity. It's about an utter rejection of foolishness. Because a little bit can do a whole lot of damage. 
So the preacher sits to convey this to you by weighing, by carefully studying or searching out and plundering. And then finally, the third term here, you see the work of the editor as he speaks in third person about the preacher. But it's this Jewish theologian sitting behind this vehicle of literary work known as the preacher who then began to teach. Here is the editor doing his process, and he wants you to know that this is what he did. He weighed, he carefully considered, he sifted through to try and find the most persuasive. And then finally, he is arranging many proverbs with a spirit of great care. This is what the preacher did for your sake. He arranged, or as we learn in our first freshman English class, those of you who are getting ready for college, those of you who have already gone through college, uh, and all of those who have taken some sort of English class at some point, you go into your very first writing class, and they tell you at that point, organize, 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 organize. You've got to organize your thoughts. You do your detailed outline. You start with your note cards. Has anybody done this process before? I'm looking out and everybody's just like, I don't know. You have. At some point you had to. Do your note cards. Be on your note cards. You submit them. You get a grade on them. You get them back. They're like, these are terrible. Now you need to move to phase two. From your note cards, you build this basic outline into your uh, detailed outline, I think is the term for that. And then you fill out your note cards. They had one sentence on them before, and now they need like a sentence with an A and a B on them. And then you got to do all of that, and then you submit all your detailed outline note cards. And then you get those back, and, you know, that can be a rough process. Then they send you back, and they say, again, what you need to do, Adam, is you're all over the place. You need to organize your thoughts. Like, you're losing everyone right now. Organize, organize, organize. You need to help somebody. Lay out a thesis statement. Tell somebody. This is what I hope to persuade you in the next few minutes. And then lead us as to create the burden as to why do we need to know what you're about to share. I mean, come on, folks. This is English 101. And the preacher is saying, I did the same. You have to organize to be powerfully persuasive. Not sit and throw out empty words or bloviate about something. But be persuasive. I took that which was available. I weighed it carefully against itself. I sought to be persuasive. And I took all of the firepower that I stored up in my study and I organized it and I arranged it so as not in an end of itself that you would read it and be like, wow, that's a really literary, that's a, that's a literary masterpiece. Good and well, but I want its contents to be persuasive to you. Did you really read it? I spent a lot of time crafting it. I set them in order to be utterly persuasive to you. And I did it not in a sterile environment or in a detached way because I really just wanted to be seen as a great writer. Or I really wanted to pull off what is a really awesome literary convention in order for you to kind of really wink, wink and notice some neat things I had to say in Proverbs that you didn't know were there. But rather, he says, I did so with great care. It isn't a detached individual. It is a man who cares. Certainly he roots his care as we find later in verse 11. In the Lord. This individual cares for those who are under him. That they simply wouldn't be moved by persuasive arguments. But they would be moved humbly to repentance and faith. I arranged them 
with great care for you. I want to join then as we look from this perspective of his careful editorial work, the painstaking process in presenting to us what is known as Ecclesiastes. Because I think it promotes two things that we need to say at the outset about, or or rather wind down, as we should say, in our conclusions this morning about the book of Ecclesiastes and what this editorial work communicates. And that is two things right up front I want to hammer on, and that is the importance, as I have said already, what this editorial work and all of this labor indicates to us or says perhaps quite explicitly is, number one, the importance of wisdom. And again, this might sound like, man, this is beating the dead horse, and yet it is um, so important that we see this throughout the book because this is why he weighed, studied, and arranged with great care, not for your mind alone, but for your heart to also be assured and persuaded. And that is the importance of wisdom. And then after the importance of wisdom, just for a moment, let's consider the broader purposes of wisdom. What, what is the purpose? So kind of think of it in a twofold manner. What's the importance in the data Okay, so you're persuaded unto, he, he's got you. He, he, he brought you in to his argument. And you're submissive to the thought of, I need to be wise in and of myself. I need to be wise. I am thus so persuaded. And then he's going to move you. Okay, fine, that's good and dandy. But, but I have a little bit more to push you with in the thread of wisdom. And that is its broader purpose. So, so one, the importance, great, we're there. And then two, its broader purposes. Um, we need to be consistent and, and thoroughly uh, schooled and trained in. So the first thing uh, we want to look at this morning in the editorial work is simply what this editorial work should indicate to us about the preacher's perspective on the importance of wisdom. What is it? And it is simply this, that we need to make sacrifices and expend our energies in the efforts of gaining it. Again, it isn't by osmosis that you lay down on your pillow and wisdom is dumped into your mind. It just gets poured in, you know, and all the jokes of laying, falling asleep while studying and the idea of osmosis, I'm just going to lay there. And I think that's the term. I haven't used it in a long time, but it comes to mind. I, you lay on your book or you lay on your Bible and the verses start going in. You know, no, right? Tongue in cheek, silliness. The preacher's process here, the careful editorial work, to be so persuasive is to push us at least to grasp the importance of such wisdom for us. It is that wisdom comes by sacrifice. You need to read. You need to pray. You need to memorize. You need to share. You need to sit under. You need to continue to meditate upon the word of the Lord. You need to expend energy. Get up before church starts. Put a priority on gaining the wisdom of the Lord in your Sunday schedule. It's Lord's Day. We need to make sacrifices. We need to expend energies in the efforts of gaining wisdom. It isn't like if I skip, there's of no consequence. There is a consequence. Well, point it out to me. Well, I can't. So let's say if, if, we, if we miss Lord's Day, and it's not Lord's Day, it's my day. Okay, so we miss Lord's Day. Tell me what happened to me spiritually because of it. I did X, Y, and Z on my own, or I didn't, 
or maybe I catch it on Monday. What, what, what occurred? What condition am I in by Monday if I skip Lord's Day gathering of wisdom on Sunday? What's the, what's the actual spiritual temperature or condition of my soul at that point in time? Well, I can tell you. Well, then I guess the argument falls. It doesn't. Because this is the means by which God has sought to feed his sheep is Lord's Day worship. It then thus follows, to be absent from is to experience a burden, a weakness, a lack of wisdom. Well, I'll just recall something I heard three or four weeks ago. <laughs> it, it mysteriously works quite different than that. We are to make sacrifices, expend our energies, prioritize and work to gain wisdom. This significantly applies as the preacher indicates to his weighing, studying, arranging with great care the importance of wisdom. Secondly, consider beyond the importance of wisdom, of, our, uh, of what we learn from his editorial work, about the importance of weighing, learning, studying, arranging, meditating on, expending energy because it is so life-critical. It's not just simply the gaining of wisdom or its importance, but then consider, secondly, its more broader purposes. Its broader purposes. What are they? Well, it seems quite clear as the preacher in verse 9 is, again, besides being wise himself... So, so look there, he, he expended the energy, he thought through, he weighed, he meditated upon, he, he himself was wise through the process of gaining wisdom, exerting his own energies. So now we're looking as the editor speaks, the preacher was wise. So, okay, so he has statement one, the importance of wisdom is keen on the preacher. He grasps it. It's critical. The preacher is a wise man. But then notice... Wisdom's broader usage. The preacher also taught the people knowledge. You see, and then that comes into how so carefully he taught. He weighed, he studied, he arranged, and, and he did so with a spirit of great care. So he is wise himself, statement one, its importance, and he then taught it to others. Wisdom's broader usage. That is, wisdom's broader purpose is to be transmitted to others. The sole purpose we have to grasp as believers, every one of us in here, that as we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes, the entire work carefully edited and put together by the work of the Holy Spirit, and also in this singular text and two comments by the preacher through the editor, that the sole purpose of wisdom and godliness is not self-consumption. Right? And I, it is its purpose. It is not its sole, standalone purpose is self-consumption. Right, Because but he was wise. Why didn't he stop there then? He had a good life. He carefully weighed. He understood. He knew foolishness and folly. He knew simplicity. And he chose the path of fear and God and wisdom. 
Well, then why didn't he just walk off into the sunset? Because it's not an end in and of itself that I might be wise in my dealings and leave everyone else out of it. But the nature of wisdom, God's gift of wisdom, is that it would be transmitted unto others. That is, as we see here through the effort of the preacher, he who himself who was wise yet undertook so carefully to transmit it that godliness is to be urgently and carefully transmitted to others. This is the life of the church. Consider the life in the Old Covenant. You know this very well. Consider Moses. The gathering of the law or sitting in the plains of Moab and writing down a redemptive history for Israel from Genesis to Deuteronomy that they might know and love the Lord thy God. It wasn't that he might ascend, receive, be made wise, shine bright, and then come down and go back in his tent and everybody's like, what happened up there? What, 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 what? And he's like, don't worry about it. I'm just, I'm going to be wise in my dealings. You'll be able to see it. Don't worry. It was in the transmission of wisdom that the word of the Lord and the fear of the Lord might be before the people of Israel, that he might receive the wisdom of the Lord and thus transmit that wisdom that God might have many godly people as the fruit of his labors. The giving of his law might produce a godly crop, as we learned in the book of Hebrews. Consider Ezra. Another old covenant saint who in discovery of the law, if you recall what he did. He hid it under a bushel. No, he let it shine, let it shine. Carefully undertook to study. Carefully undertook to exegete or exposit, explain the law of the Lord. Check this out. Quick, let's hide it. Check this out. This is the word of the Lord. So therefore, by being wise, he sought himself to teach people knowledge. And then you see it in Paul's missionary enterprises, of course. As you look at the New Testament again and again, missionary journey to missionary journey, the entire missionary enterprise is to teach people the knowledge of God and the truth of his gospel. It isn't simply for self purposes or or five steps to a better you the purposes of wisdom is not to insulate yourself from others thereby having the upper hand that i know the lord and i am of his people i have received him my faith rests in him i am his and his alone and everybody else who cares but rather we see the purpose of wisdom is not for insulating ourselves away from everybody else but is the very purpose of wisdom that we would share it and transmit it to others. Notice carefully in the text how he brings together two key aspects. And, and we, it seems that we desperately need this, all of us, um, in this kind of bit more hostile age, I guess we could say. Um, 
maybe in American culture, it's kind of becoming uh, uh, new to us in the last um, maybe 20, 30 years or so. Um, the sharing of our faith and the feeling of, of, of evangelicalism, feeling it's marginalized or put down or under attack. Um, the atmosphere more broadly that you feel maybe as a Reformed Christian um, out and about and then the, the, the kind of carrying this burden of, of defending your faith or sharing your faith and feeling that it's already entering into a very hostile climate and a hostile situation and then the need for wisdom in doing so. How then to be a faithful Christian, how to then share the gospel, how to speak, how to make a stand, wh- choosing when and where to make what stand all of that, um, you know, we do better at ta- sometimes and we do poorly at sometimes. Um, so, so how can we get guidance if we know that, that to be wise in the fear of the Lord and the reception of Christ as our Lord and our faith resting in him is the beginning of wisdom. And the purpose of wisdom is then thereby to be transmitted, not simply to be held in or hidden under a bushel but then to be shared and transmitted to others. There's a couple of marks he gives us here that will arm us in how to then, being wise, transmit wisely. Because it does matter how, not just that we do it, but how we do it. Notice the the artfulness of the preacher in verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. Let me read 9 and 10 now that you've just read 10 and then listen to what the preacher is doing here. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, arranging many proverbs with a spirit of great care. The preacher sought to find in that weighing, in that studying, in that arranging, this is what he sought to find in his process, words of delight. And then this is how he sought, from from what position he sought words of delight. He did so uprightly. He wrote words that were true. There are two things that stand out here for us uh, to gain wisdom in the transmission of wisdom, knowing that it is wisdom's nature or purpose is to be shared. And that is the first term, delightful. The first step in like sharing our faith or being able to speak forth wisdom, whether within Christ's church or beyond Christ's church in the, in, in, the, in the web of relationships that exist beyond the church. Certainly we all in this room have relationships that are non-believing relationships where, where, where again, we're in the workplace or again, how do we respond when we're watching TV and we feel like, oh no, some alarmist is on there telling us that the world is falling and, and the Christians are being marched out in the streets two doors down. Okay, some alarmists, okay, well, that can make me feel like a little bit uneasy, like maybe we are under this attack. How do I respond in the workplace and so on and so forth? How? Well, delightfully. There's one term that stands out here, and that is the Hebrew term delightful. Translated in English is simply this, great pleasure. And this is what he is saying about his carefully weighing out and thinking, studying and arranging. That is, he is seeking to communicate the knowledge of God and the gospel in an artful way. You see, um, again, back to that English classroom that we are in, perhaps we've listened to someone speak about mass communications or teaching and how to do so skillfully, and you hear this term or, or, or this kind of phrase that communicating is both an art and a, you know it, what is it? Oh, thank you. Okay, I'm not the only one that heard that. Thank you. It is an art and a science. 
anybody who is in the threat of communicating or anyone who is getting you in an English class and trying to make you into some sort of artful communicator. They share that with you, that transmission of knowledge is an art and a science. All the teachers in here that teach high school kids know that very well. It is an art and a science. You seek to persuade, not by being a bull in a china shop, china shop or pinning down a kid and trying to yank his teeth out. You're not seeking to, you need to know this, and you got them like this, and you're giving them the people's elbow, and that's how you do it verbally. That's not how someone is moved. That's not how someone will be so persuaded. It's by pinning them down, showing you can lord over them, pin them down, and boom, a superflex. The idea is that it is to be persuasive. There is an art in communicating here that he undertook so skillfully, that is to speak to you. Not so that you would kind of do what is kind of what my dog does on the leash. There is a, a pull mechanism, right? Naturally, you put the leash on, you're trying to walk, and what does a dog do? And they pull this way. Now, again, I don't seek words that are delightful. I don't act like the preacher. I just jerk her along until she goes. That wouldn't be how we'd transmit wisdom. It would be opposite of that, right? It would be a transmission by way of artfulness that is to seek to win over the audience, to give a winsome approach. So the careful preacher here seeks to give a delivery that is winsome, that is to do the artful work of transmitting the revelation of God to an audience that might at one moment feel the need to jerk back. I'm feeling like I'm being forced. I'm jerking back. He seeks to persuade. One author notes it this way. To be upright, so this is the terminology. I skipped the other term. Sorry, I didn't provide it there. The other term there quite simply is uprightly. That is the word for truthfully. So that is, if we notice there, I want to step back. I'm sorry I missed that. I want to step back. The two points of persuasion, Christian apologetic or Christian evangelism, or in the transmission of wisdom, is this winsome approach, right? So back to the word of delight. He seeks to persuade. Knowing if I come in with a leash and I try to wrap it around the head and I try to jerk it to where I want to go, the, the response is going to be, I'm going this way. So the preacher seeks, so also you, in the way that you seek to persuade, that it isn't throwing a leash on and jerking, but it is a way to speak craftfully, artfully, delightfully. But yet here is the next key piece, uprightly. You see, It is this tandem work that he remains at the heart of his apologetic. He remains utterly committed to the truth. At some point, it is what it is. It isn't all up for grabs because I'm seeking to be delightful. I'm seeking to persuade. Therefore, the contents of my argument can just be washed. Because I'm just looking to stroke you down and just make you feel good about whatever we're doing here. I'm not even sure what we're trying to complete in this conversation, but I'm not looking to do anything to upset the apple cart. So therefore, my delightfulness is going to couch so heavily our conversation that we never really kind of get to the persuasion to the truth. I'm simply seeking to be winsome. Okay, fine. But winsome, apart from truth, That in itself is not persuading someone to any one thing or any one person. So he is seeking to be winsome because it's not just about data points. And I think that's a lot of times somehow 
our Christian apologetic seems to be marked more often by heat. And, and our apologetic tends to be online with things we post somehow and we're not connected to it. But if we post it to our page, you do realize people connect that to you, right? So, so I, I think we do. And, and so somehow we seek by, by third-party proxy to post things that we're affirming or post statements or speakers that we want to, uh, again, associate. And we want to say, they have it all right, they have it all right, they have it all right. And the person can be screaming, shouting, and not logical or persuasive. It does no justice to the content of the debate to throw out the need to be winsome and persuasive. But neither do we get carried away. On the one hand, as the preacher examines and shows us carefully, he saw also to be truthful in all things. One author notes it this way, to be upright but unpleasant is to be a fool. To be upright but unpleasant is to be a fool. To be pleasant but not upright is to be a charlatan. Both of these abound. May the Lord give us wisdom to be upright and pleasant. What is the intended outcome for the end then? What is his intended outcome in all of this careful editorial work and seeking to persuade and, and studying, arranging with a spirit of great care? He is trying to find what is most persuasive by words that are delightful. He's not trying to loop you with a leash and yank you down the street so that you have a reflexive move of going the other way. And he's seeking to do so in such an artful, persuasive manner, yet he is remaining committed to that which is true and upright. Well, for what purpose? What is your intended outcome for persuading me, for saying things that are delightful on the ears and able to be received in the heart? What is your outcome for me? Well, it is this. He intends to use wisdom all that is at his exposure. He seeks to use this wisdom to guide us along, not to himself as a winsome and artful speaker, but to the chief shepherd of our souls. This is what he is seeking to do as you sit under the book of Ecclesiastes, as you sit and read the book of Ecclesiastes. He's trying to guide you, not back into Jewish wisdom literature as a standalone subject, but unto, through the vehicle of wisdom, unto the shepherd of your soul from which all wisdom doth come. This is what he seeks to do, and we see that in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. You say, what are you doing with, with these proverbs, with these upright words, these pretty words that fall so clearly upon my ears? What do you want from me? Well, I want to do this. I want to goad you. I want to find you where you're at. Seeing again where you have an imbalance of, of, the, of the horizontal and a failure where the vertical is, is just going away into the distance. I want to find you there and I want to pour forth before you delightful persuasive words that I've given a lot of time to, that I have rehearsed through my own study, that I have arranged so carefully that I would give them and set them before you to be consumed with your ears and then enter down your heart and that these words would goad you. Like, like goad nails, firmly fixed. You know what I mean. That, 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 that I would goad you with these goad nails. With what? With the collected sayings. 
with Proverbs carefully arranged because they're rooted in the wisdom of God. I want to goad you with them back to him. I want you to repent by them and trust in him. The picture, verse 11, of that word of goading. I had to look that one up quite carefully. Uh, that is, the picture here is of a shepherd's tool. And maybe uh, study Bibles make this more available. But the picture here is of a shepherd's tool that is called a goad. And the, the, the translation here that says goads and like nails kind of creates a, a, a breakage, I think, um, from, the, from the one picture he's trying to paint. It isn't that they're like goads on the one hand, and they're like also kind of parallel nails that are firmly fixed. It, it's better to conceive of it, I, I think, here in verse 11, like goads and goad nails, like the nail goes with the goad. Because this is an instrument used by a shepherd This is why he says, I come not as a bull, but as a shepherd. Not to jerk along in force by coercion, but to persuade with words that are delightful, yet truthful. And so what I want to do with him is I want to take this goad, and you know, as a shepherd does, with the goad nail on the end, this little splinter of a piece of steel, or perhaps at that time it would be more like some sort of hardened stone, And at this point, I want to take it that is embedded. So at the end of the goad, I want to simply insert the nail on the end of the goad. And then I want to poke the hindquarters, you know, that that, that you would get back in line. Wait, 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 wait. This isn't the green pasture that belongs to us. We need to be in that one over there. Well, Again, the pull reflex. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I don't want, you're, you're making me go there. No, 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 no. I want to persuade you to go there. Because this, this grass isn't for you. But it seems green. It seems harmless. It seems good for taking, but it doesn't belong to you. It isn't good for you. So I'm going to use this to persuade you. Do you see that? I do see that. You see that field over there, how good that is? I do. Good. Let's go. And then poke, poke, move along. This is the work of a caregiving shepherd seeking to move reluctant sheep back into the green pasture that will nourish their souls. This is what he sought to do for you in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you consider what was our reluctance that he addressed again and again throughout the book, that he took a a wise word and a strong proverb and he stuck it in the hindquarters to move everybody along. What was it? What were some of its topics? Just briefly, as we wind down our time this morning and our time in Ecclesiastes altogether, remember, he saw it with wise words that were desirous and kind, yet utterly and unafraid true. He said, to move the sheep that were reluctant to seize the day that the Lord had provided, to be wise stewards, enter into it joyfully, and enjoy with those who are with them. He sought to push and pride and push the animals that were reluctant, or the people, that is, of his pasture, that were reluctant to put away self-indulgence. He sought to persuade you. Self-indulgence is not the pathway to freedom. 
He sought to push us in yet another sermon that he put forward to us who were reluctant and caught in self-generated wisdom. He sought by wise words that were delightful to poke and prod us out of self-generated wisdom standing in one's own bare strength. No, it's not going to work. Two more sermons come to mind just briefly as we look at his work as the careful editor putting on the words of the preacher delightful words that were sound and true and godliness driven of one shepherd that he might guide the sheep along to green pastures as that we might put away the love of wealth and possessions and that we might be so persuaded away. The final sermon that I thought of together that we were reluctant to hear and yet he used to guide and push us along was the pushing away of childlike foolishness. Again, verse 12 makes clear that the word of the Lord is so sure as he winds down his time with us, verse 12. As he tried to goad you along for several sermons, verse 12, my son, which again is that convention of literary work and wisdom literature. You see that in Proverbs where the, 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 the teacher says to the pupil, and it's a fatherly-son kind of relationship. Wisdom is typical this way. As he speaks to you this morning, he says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. What do you mean beyond what? Beyond the word of the Lord. Beware, take note, tread lightly. Of the making of many books and self-help series, there is no end. Much study is a weariness of the soul or a weariness of the flesh. That is, it drains, it doesn't provide. It might give you a spritz at the beginning. It might get you off to a good Monday morning, but the case of the Mondays will return. Look to the word that comes to you by grace from one shepherd. He is so sure of the influence of the word. He wants to drive you this morning again and again back to the word. And to resist competing influences. Finally, the conclusion this morning, which is the... Uh, well known to all of us is the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is he gives us two key directives to leave with us as this preacher and editor seeking to persuade with delightful words that he hopes we have received at this point by faith, that we too give ourselves to wisdom and recognize the emptiness of foolishness, that we tread lightly in self-help series or podcasts, and that we would give ourselves by faith to the word, and that is the end of the matter is this. This is my son, what I really want you to grasp of what I have sought and carefully studied and arranged with great care and I've weighed out the matter each and every step of the way. The end of all things here for life lived under the sun is this. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. The two directives that you see there for your life going forward from the book of Ecclesiastes and that which is to be imprinted upon the heart by faith is simply this. Fear God, one, and keep his commandments, two. I want to briefly note in my last couple of moments, it will be short with you, 
in the last couple of moments, just notice that what he is describing here to the Son, that is to you, who receive Christ and rest in him by faith, when you are sitting here under the influence of the word, hear from the preacher, he speaks to you of fear. And it's important that we make the distinction between the fear of God that is servile and a fear of God that is childlike. He is not speaking to you to fear God only to escape judgment. So that when you are brought into judgment, you can somehow know, I feared you sufficiently. Does that garnish favor? I worried that this day was coming. Does that get me any points? He is not speaking of a servile fear to the children. He is speaking of a filial fear. That is, that which is befitting of a child. It is a fear that acknowledges his honor and comes humbly before his feet. It is one that lays themselves unto him, trusting and resting upon him alone for salvation, apart from works alone. I am a child, not a slave. I am not serving you strictly out of exiting from judgment, but I am serving you and obeying your commandments, for they are a delight to me because it's befitting of a child. Fear God is a description of that which befits all of God's children. Second then is like unto it, so this fear then is driven on to a life of command and a life of obedience. We don't reject the use of the law here at Redeemer. I know we don't, right? The word of the Lord is sweet. His precepts are right. So it is we come under his commandments to obey by faith that his spirit would produce those fruits within us that we might fear him and love him and honor him by obeying him. In this way, we can speak in conclusion that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He is wisdom personified. So we take Ecclesiastes, that which is indeed wisdom literature, and we see that it speaks to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's wisdom personified. Christ and fear God and keep his commandments merge together in 1 John 3, 23. And let me read for you in conclusion this word in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is his commandment, writes John. So, so the preacher says, fear God and keep his commandment. John then comes to us in the New Testament and says, and this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another just as he has commanded us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. 